We are in the book of Judges again, and we are talking this morning again. Uh, I think this is the third message out of uh, Gideon's life, and one of the judges that is found in the book of Judges. And as you know, just by way of introduction on this, uh, the book of Judges covers about a roughly a period of about 400 years. That's quite a time frame. If you figure that um, about 400 years ago, um, first Europeans were just settling here in this part of the world, you know, permanently. And in the time frame of that, we've built a nation as far as all our, our mixed nation that it is now, all of that. But you can imagine what a 400-year period in just, you know, anybody's history reflects. But it's interesting, the history of Israel during that time was one of cycles away from God and then being... Uh, God raising up a leader, a judge, who would call them to repent and bring them back and actually deliver them, uh, being delivered from their enemies. And then they would, for a generation or two, follow the Lord, and then they would end up back in this cycle, repeating what their forefathers had done and going back into idolatry, leaving the Lord as far as following him, and it would bring bondage again, and they would find themselves enslaved and calling out to God, and God is quick to hear, but we have to call upon him. And that was often the case with the people of Israel. Now, there was always faithful people, a remnant that God would, that was there, and God would use those people to be raised up to call others to a life of faith. And really, that's what the, the Bible portrays for us from cover to cover. God has always wanted people everywhere to trust him. And when we trust God, it is this aspect of faith. It, it, it's a, something that we're saying, we're relying on you, Lord. And the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so God requires us to trust him. And you may say, well, how do I do that? And there are often many different ways we trust the Lord. First and foremost, and I always say this up front, is that you need to trust him for your eternity trust him for salvation to forgive you of your sins we'll talk some more about that but then trusting you all trusting him also in your daily life right now saying god how can i live by faith and please you today are there areas where maybe i need to rely on you more and god help me in those areas and he will if you ask him that well we're here in judges chapter six we left off last time with gideon uh, looking at various things in Gideon's life. And you remember Gideon is first introduced in this chapter to, as a man who uh, he's really, in my opinion, looking on at his actions, a man that would not have stood out at all as someone who would be a great warrior. And yet God looks at Gideon and sees the real man. He even sees beyond the man that was there at that time and calls him the mighty man of valor. And as we'll discover, I probably, Gideon, of all these judges, I find myself identifying more and more with Gideon in that sometimes I am a man that walks and I think, well, I'm following God, but then on the other hand, I'm doubting God. And I don't want to do that. And I want to be a man of faith. And Gideon is a man that was a work in progress. And that part of Gideon's life I identify with very well. <laughs> And sometimes I look and I think, how could I or how could any of us ever be used in some mighty task that God has for us or even some little task uh, that others may consider little but something God wants you to do and he's called you to do. And, and you just have to sit back and say, 
Lord, I have to have faith and belief that you can do this. You are able. And Gideon was a man that was a work in progress. And we'll learn some more about him in that. And we're going to pick it up here in, just give me a second as I call up my notes. But we're going to pick it up there in chapter 6, reading down in verse 33. It says, Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together, and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and then he blew the trumpet, and the Abrazites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early in the morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung out or wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on uh, all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. Lord, we come before you, opening up your word, and I pray, O oh God, you would just teach us to live by faith, to follow you, to rely on you in the big things and the small things, and that it may please you today with such heart attitudes. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we come to this man of Gideon, and we see this, this man of faith, uh, and yet in this portion of his life, which is just a, a snapshot of his life. It isn't his whole life. And uh, I would say this, the measure of any person isn't necessarily just one little snapshot of their life, but the whole. And in particular, how we finish, more importantly than how we began. Solomon said, better is a man's, the day of, a man's, or de- day of death than the, the day of birth. And he, he makes that statement, and that's because the measure of a life lived really shows up in the end, doesn't it? Not in the beginning. And many start out well, few finish well. Be a finisher. Be someone who will finish well and determine today that will be your action and set out on that mission. And Gideon was a man here that he, we know he's not the same guy that he was back in the beginning of the chapter when he's afraid. He's hiding from the Midianites. He's down threshing out wheat in the wine press where really the worst place you could be because it didn't work. There was no wind down there. And, and he's hiding from the Midianites. That's what the Bible says. And that's why he was down there. He wasn't up on the, in the threshing floor up in the high country. He was worried about the Midianites coming and probably stealing his grain and even doing worse than that. And the Midianites had used Israel at this time as their storehouse. Instead of them harvesting crops and planting crops and all of that, they just relied on Israel to do it, and then they came and raided it and stole and did that. You can imagine living under that kind of, well, oppression, especially in a time where if you didn't have crops and you didn't have enough food to get through the the season that didn't grow, well, you could starve to death. 
and your family would be gone, right? And so Gideon, all that's resting on his shoulders, and he's hiding from the Midianites. And yet there he encounters God. And we, we read about that a couple uh, messages ago and how he really met God. And then he uh, goes and really uh, offers up a sacrifice on an altar. An altar which happened to be a place where previous to that was a place of idolatry. And, and we find last time we talked about this, Gideon who goes out in the middle of the night because he's afraid of his family. He's afraid because they're idolaters. He's afraid if he throws down this idol to Baal and um, gets rid of it in Ashtera, then they're going to be, well, they want to kill him. And we left off sort of last week talking about that whole idea of the fear that rides, sometimes rises in our hearts. And God dealt with him on every one of these occasions and was merciful in Gideon's life. And can I say right up at the beginning of this message, I am thankful for God's mercy. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that his mercies are new every morning. In other words, they're as new today, this morning, as they were yesterday morning. And he extends that mercy. And I'm glad he does because this person who sometimes makes bad decisions like Gideon and doesn't always you know, stand in the might of the Lord but is fearful and maybe nobody else sees it, but I do, and God does, that God is merciful because he doesn't consume us when we're lacking faith. Instead, he wants to lead us into a place where we trust him more and more. And that's what he does with Gideon, and I'm thankful for that. Well, we, we found out a little bit about him, and uh, remember, he was afraid. We left off last week looking at that. So Gideon took ten men from among the servants and did as the Lord had said to him, but because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. In other words, he, he just said, I'm going to go do this secretly. And there are a lot of people who, I, I think they're true believers. God would put his stamp on you for trusting him for salvation. But they're sort of these Christians that just live in the secret parts. They're secret Christians, right? God doesn't want us to be secret Christians or secret trust you know followers or anything like that he wants us to follow him in the light and jesus put it this way that a city that is set on the hill cannot be hid right and neither do you light a a candle and put it under a bushel right you don't do that the light is to be shined forth and he says so let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your father which is in heaven and i i think that's the way we are i know that's the way we're to live and sometimes that's an uncomfortable way of living. You say, I'm kind of having to open my, my life up, you know, my personal life, and, and, and shine to other people. What might they see if you opened up your personal life? And the reality is this, that your spiritual walk with the Lord is only as deep as it is when you're in private with him, when no one else sees. And just think of that for a moment. Gideon was a man who privately was in great turmoil of fear, and yet God, time and time again, would come to him and would uh, reassure him and show him. And this is that same account in this section of God showing him and extending a hand of grace and mercy to him. Well, we see the place of faith in Gideon's life, the place of faith. And, and literally, there was more than just the place of uh, of it in, in his life personally, but there's a geographic place. According to the Bible, it says 
in verse 33, Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Now, the valley of Jezreel is this natural um, sort of plain that if you were to invade Israel, even to this day, you would have to, by moving troops in, go through the valley of Jezreel. It's actually um, named the Valley of Megiddo elsewhere, and it is the place where a final battle will someday take place called Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo, the Valley of Jezreel. And it's interesting, if you go through scripture, you look at the Valley of Jezreel, lots of things happened in that valley, but by it was a natural place for a large army to move into the land. And that's exactly what's going on. The Amalekites and the Midianites have gathered together and they're in that valley and they're ready to come in and invade. And we know there were thousands of them. The, the Bible uh, refers to it in chapter 7. Look at it, it says this. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. You couldn't even number them. As you were on the high country overlooking that valley, all you would see is movement like sand. And you couldn't even number the amount of camels that were there, let alone the men that were also there. And later on, there is a number put to them in chapter 8, and we know there are 135,000 that fall. So there was a large army, for sure, that was gathered there. And that's the scene that plays out. And can I tell you, the number one enemy to our faith is not just the number one enemy, because we see there's really three enemies that battle against us, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. But in this case, as Gideon looks out, he sees the enemy, and he sees the numerous or power of the enemy, and he takes his eyes off God, and he's worried. Yet God has called him and said, I'm going to have you be the victorious, mighty man of valor over your enemy. And I can picture Gideon, sometimes I see him very personally in my own life, and he's doubting now what God has promised. Don't doubt what God has promised. Don't dwell there very long if you do. Because the enemy is always going to look more powerful. The enemy is always going to look more prosperous, more plentiful. It's going to always see that. And if you look to the Lord... You find out your real place, right? He is big. He is the creator. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And they're just dust. And the enemy is like that. His doom is secured. Well, that was the case here as well. He looked out. He saw the enemy. And sometimes the enemy looks like he's just more numerous than locusts. You can't even count them. And there's so much going on. And yet God is God. And he's still above it all. Be reminded of that. Well, we also see what takes place here in Gideon's life. It says, and I like that, because this ends with this scene unfolding in the valley of Jezreel of this massive army that nobody can number, and then turns around on a conjunction, the word but. And I'm glad for that, because that's one of those conjunctions that actually changes the direction of a thought, right? And that's exactly how it's used here. He, you have the enemy, and he's so numerous, but the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Don't ever forget that, that one man with God is, is what? A majority, exactly. 
And that's what you see here. One man with God. And I'm glad for that. And by the way, we as believers have the Holy Spirit to actually in this age reside with us. Now, in the Old, Tem- uh, Old Testament times, you, the Holy Spirit would come and dwell with somebody and not necessarily take up permanent residence on that person or in that person. That is a unique aspect of this age after the day of Pentecost where he actually takes up residence inside a believer. You yourselves are a temple of the Holy Spirit and you're sealed onto the day of redemption. We'll look at that uh, in a moment. But in the Old Testament, David could pray things like this, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And David would pray that because in essence, the Holy Spirit could come to David and then could also depart. We see that also with Saul, his previous king, and the Spirit of God departed from Saul. Uh, We see it with Samson in Judges chapter 16, the same thing. The Spirit of God left Samson. Today, we do not have to fear that the Spirit of God will leave us, but in, in this age, we can quench the Holy Spirit and we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, the power that is available to us is is now. Just like as the Spirit of God came upon Gideon, he also had the power of God to accomplish the mission that was ahead. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? See, God does not dwell in, in temples or church buildings or sanctuaries or some you know shrine somewhere he dwells in the life and the very essence of a believer isn't that great not just one but many all of us first corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 or do you not know that your body is the temple of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have from god and you are not your own that's a good Good place to be reminded all the time. You're not your own. Paul says you're bought with a price. And that price is the very blood of Jesus Christ, the very life of Jesus Christ, his vicarious death to accomplish righteousness in your life. And he gives us the Holy Spirit as that not only seal, but down payment of what what is to come, which is glory in heaven. We get God. He identifies with us. In whom, Ephesians 2.21, in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together, the church, the individuals in the church, look, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We're, we're commanded to be relying more on God. That's faith, by the way. Instead of relying on things that make you drunk or take away whatever urge or whatever else, things like that, be reliant more on God. That's what he says. Be filled with the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, are you really one of His? If you are one of His, then the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his own, or he's not his. 
1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. And that is the identification. That's what the word baptism really means. It's the idea of identifying. And it's not referring to the water baptism that we just witnessed last week in our church, uh, where we conducted baptisms, not inside the building, obviously. Um, But it refers to the identification doctrine of God identifying with us. God who is holy identifying with sinners. And as you are baptized into the Spirit, it is a picture, that's what goes on in the inside. You are identifying with Him as your Savior, and you are dying to sin. Because He put it to death on the cross. And you're saying, I believe that. And I turn from my sin to trust you, Lord. And He identifies with us. My sin was placed on Him. His righteousness came to my account. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And Paul wraps that up in this section by saying, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. That body is considered the body of Christ, the universal church. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. One of the great things about Christianity, and this is the practical part of Christianity, is that where Christianity was embraced, you have the issues that so divide the world were pushed aside because people began to realize that they are in one body, a spiritual body, which is the church, and that there isn't a distinction racially. There's really only one race, human race. There isn't uh, differences between Jews and Greeks. In other words, there may be actual differences in culture and things like that. But in standing with God, we're equal. And amen for that. And where people embrace that idea, theologically, it, it would always bring betterment to society. I've been reading um, or listening actually to... Uh, a course on the Vikings and the history of the Vikings and all that. And, of course, they were known early on for their their raiding and their wars and all of that, those things. And they were great at raiding places and then exacting tribute uh, at, to large sums of money or wealth or uh, other ways, you know, goods. And if you couldn't pay that, they would take you in and sell you, take you captive and sell you as slaves. And it was when Christianity impacted the Vikings or in the, the Norsemen and they embraced Christianity that they understood slavery was wrong and they, they no longer did that. Now, I'm not saying get all your theology from the early Vikings and all that or even early Western Europe, but as Christianity became embedded within, for instance, Europe, um, these things went away. Where did that come from? It came from texts like this, 1 Corinthians. Isn't it great? Today people want to always want to enslave you and do that. Well, teach them the gospel. Teach them the scriptures. Galatians chapter 5 says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. In other words, there's a battle that's always going on within us, and it's really the battle of unbelief and faith. Those two things. And what you feed, you will do. Here's Gideon back in our text this morning, you know, and he is he knows God has told him he's going to be victorious, and yet when the enemy shows up, he's worried. 
and fear rises in his heart. And now he's thinking, how can I do this task that God has called me to do? And unbelief has come in. Those are the ancient battles within the person. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelry, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, there it is again, another conjunction. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk, also walk in the Spirit. Your conduct should follow your profession if it's real. And that's how we ought to live, yielding ourselves to him. And I could go on and on, but there's lots of of various things. And by the way, he is the Lord, and he is the one who has promised to dwell in us. Jesus actually promised that in John chapter 14. And we know if we trust him, look what it says, in him also, you also trusted, Ephesians 1.13, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. By the way, that's the order in which that happens. You hear the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And you believe, or you choose not to believe. You've got that as the word of God comes. You believe. And then the Spirit of God dwells in you. And that's how that works. And he says you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed. You, by the way, I don't think God can, anything can break the seal of God. It's a good thing. Because if I had to hold that seal on my own life, it would have been broken a long time ago. But his seal is good. And he's the one. And I'm thankful for that. Well, what does this mean, right? Gideon says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And what did it do? And you look at it in the second part. It says, then he blew the trumpet. Now, now picture this scene. You've got hundreds of thousands of people out there gathering for war. And you have Gideon and his God. That's it. What a, what a contrast. And here's Gideon thinking probably like a lot of us do. Fears rising in his heart. But then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And what does he do? He blew the trumpet. Now, now, humanly speaking, that would be kind of silly. Why? Because up to this point, it's just Gideon standing there. And there's all these men of war gathering for war, and Gideon blows a trumpet. That's dumb. Why would you do that? Blow a trumpet. Because now, they're going to know where you are. No tactician in military history would ever have written something like that. But the trumpets were used for many different reasons. And one of the reasons of the trumpet was so the people would gather and then be directed at the sound of the trumpet. 
And that's exactly what Gideon does. This courage rises in his heart. It's not his own courage. It's God's courage. And he becomes a man of God that God wanted him to be. And he calls out using that trumpet. And look what happens. And the Abrazites gathered behind him. You go from the place of faith now to the people of faith. And that's plural, people. Because up to this point, we have, uh, remember, he's fearful of his family. He's fearful that they're going to kill him because he's torn down their idols and made an altar to the creator God and sacrificed on that altar using the wood of Ashtera, the other idol, and used that as as a means to burn and all of those things. And he's fearful. And yet God told him and his family, remember his father, um, stood up with him and God was at work in his family's life he didn't even realize it and basically the Aberzites, Aberzites they are the tribe or clan of Gideon he blows a trumpet and they gather I love that because sometimes we think we stand alone and we're not sometimes you just need to blow the trumpet right make the call and that's what goes on And then we find out they gathered. And then also, you have behind them, it says, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him, whole tribe. He also sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. And all of a sudden, you go from um, just this small man standing with his God to now lots of people standing behind him. And that's how faith works, by the way. It's contagious. Uh, sometimes we're fearful and, and you have this you know, close following that's behind him. But then it spreads to the other tribes of Israel. That kind of faith is a contagious kind of faith. We, we need that in our life. It's an infectious faith. When one believer stands up courageously... And takes on things. It makes others stand up. When one begins to share their faith. And they come back and they say. Hey I had a great time to witness to somebody. All of a sudden it gives you a little boldness and courage to do the same thing. Especially when you do it together. That's a great option. Opportunity. I'll tell you that there, there are amazing things that go on. And you'll never see them if you don't step out in faith and trust the Lord in those circumstances. And as I said before, God is at work not just in your life, but in everybody's life. And sometimes he's preparing that person that you thought would just laugh at you and be mad at you and never ever listen to the gospel. And now you find out God's been at work in their heart. I love that. So often I'm pleasantly surprised like that. And I probably shouldn't be surprised because that's the way God is. In Matthew chapter 15, you have uh, this account, again, of the miracles of Christ. And because of the miracles of Christ, his fame began to spread. And people began to get emboldened. I know that because the Bible says those who were in charge, the religious leaders of that day, they, they didn't like that. Because all of a sudden it was about Jesus and not about them. Most of the world, that can be kind of summed up in that sort of analogy. It's either about you or it's about him. 
It's either about me or it's about him. And you have to decide who's more important. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking and the maimed made whole, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Listen, when they gathered behind Gideon, they were giving glory to the God of Israel. When we gather in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we bring glory to God. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. What a verse. What a verse. Some of the best preachers I've ever sat under and teachers I've ever sat under weren't people that had lots of degrees and, you know, behind their name, some did. But some of them were just men. They were simple in their upbringing, hard workers. And God called them and equipped them. Bob Dowie came up again this last week in a conversation. And I think of him in my life. Uh, Mr. Dowie came here and preached many times. And he had an eighth grade education. That was his formal education. And yet I have yet to meet a man in my travels, I'm sure they're out there, who had a more thorough knowledge of the Word of God and had memorized as much as he had. Every single book that he ever taught, and he taught a lot, he memorized the entire book of the Bible. And he could quote verbatim over and over again, and he weaved his sermons all in his head. Sometimes he would do it off a theme that occurred in the last hymn that was sung just before he got up to preach. And he would have a series of conference messages all done in his head based off the last 30 seconds of a song he heard before he got up. And I would say, wow. And you know, one thing, I, I'm, I'm not trying to make big of Bob Dowie because he used to say, I am what I am by the grace of God. And he just marveled that God could take a man who had as little education as he had and as much sin as he had and make something out of his life when he was converted. I'm thankful for that. And anytime you sat under Bob Dowie's ministry, you never heard a lot about him, you heard a lot about Jesus. And that's the, that's the answer to everything today, is to make a lot about him. Because if you'll do that, he'll draw people to himself. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. It's a great testimony. Sometimes we just need to rest in that. And rest in the fact that God does miracles. God does mighty things. And he's preparing. And we just need to be there. I like Luke chapter 1. When Mary finds out she's going to have a child. And then she said this. Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She's just received some, some really hard news. And good news, but hard news. She's pregnant. She's not married. And in that day and age, especially, it would be a lot of scandal. And it would be like, wow, what happened here? And yet God reveals to her what happened here. This child that was born and was now uh, starting out in, the, in her womb was conceived by the Holy Spirit 
not by a man. And she rests in that. She just rests in that. How often we need to rest in the promises of God, right? Job chapter 42. Job's gone through this terrible ordeal. Everything's been stripped away from him. His family, his goods, his health. And he has these miserable friends that come to him and tell him it's all his fault. And in the end, he sees that God is the one who's brought this about in his life so that he might see who God really is. And he says this, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Job just rests in the knowledge that has been tried in the fire in his life. And he rests in the knowledge of God. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Sometimes we just need to rest in the Lord and let him do that exceedingly abundantly, you know, abundant work that's powerful and we're not. Just do it. Just rest. Well, you have this. You have the place of faith and the people of faith. But then you have the problem of faith. Problem of faith, you say? Well, it's a problem sometimes. It's our faith. And God wants people who have minds and intellect and will and emotions and everything else to trust him. See, God didn't make just little robots that would always trust him 100% of the time, never even asking why or question anything or have any fears. No, he, he made us people. And people sometimes doubt. Sometimes they get afraid. Sometimes they turn around and go the wrong way. The problem of faith. Verse 36, so Gideon said to God. Now that's the first problem. Not that he said something to God, but that he began to question God. That's really what's there. If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Think about that statement. If you will save Israel as you have said. Has God ever ever let anybody down? No. Has God ever gone back on a promise? No. Not at all. Never. I think that the times that I have had to step out in faith and trust the Lord and I have doubted and I've tried to count all the cost of that. When, when we were headed overseas as missionaries and I'm thinking I had just two little kids at that point and I'm thinking my, my wife as well and we had I think 32 totes that we had to fly as extra baggage on a plane and I remember getting off at Logan Airport that was a journey in itself, just getting into Boston and having all these, these totes that we had that could be fit in the plane and all of those things. And we're putting those in and I'm thinking, what am I doing? Are you able, Lord? Are you able? And I thought, why would they even let me in, Ukraine? And, and the funny thing is, I got to, I was so stressed out thinking when we land and some, I don't know, by the time we got there, some 12 hours later or something like that, by the time we finally landed and uh, uh, were unloaded and everything. And we get off the plane and they're bringing all my totes through and the customs people are there, Ukrainian customs, and they're looking at it and they get to the last tote and I see them calling everybody over because they were scanning them in an x-ray machine. And they look in there and I'm like, oh no, what did I put in my tote? that is got? And then they called me aside and brought me to a little room. And they showed me an image on there. 
And it was an axe. I put an axe in there. Everybody needs an axe, right? I mean, I'm from Maine. You never know. You might find a tree that's down over the trail. And I had put an axe in there. And they looked at me and in broken English because the guy says, why do you have an axe? And I said, well, because it's a tool. You know, we have to have an axe if, in case you need to cut a tree down or something. He says, we have axes in Ukraine. <laughs> like that. And he let me in. Anyways, I shouldn't ask a boy from Maine to go to Ukraine, I guess. But, but anyways. But, you know, I saw God at work over and over and over and over and over again. I never had to use that X. Oh, yes, I did. I had it. Yes, I did once. And I split some wood at a campfire, and the Ukrainians were absolutely flabbergasted that an American could split wood. And I remember that. But God is a great God. And he'll lead us wherever it is. And he did that. And I could, I'm not going to go on with my anecdotes from things. But he calls us to trust him. And here it says, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, Look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. What you have here is, I'd like to say it's dangerous, but God is a, a God that understands us better than we understand ourselves. Gideon's having reservations about the statement that God made earlier, that I'm going to make you a victorious, mighty man, and deliver Israel. And then he goes, well, God, I'm going to test that. And this is none other than basically Gideon's attempt to take God and put him in the laboratory. Because that's what he does here. And, and many people never come to faith in God because they can't put him in a laboratory. Think about that. Much of our evidence that we have in our world that we can feel and touch and all that stuff is, is what we gather by the scientific, scientific method of proving something. You, you either observe it repeatedly and then write down your observations, you know, and test it against a theory and all of that, and you come up with a conclusion, or you bring it into a laboratory and repeat it and observe it and then come up with you know, a working theory, all of that, and we, we come to much of our conclusions of the world around us based upon that very way of doing things, though he probably didn't know anything about the scientific method of proving things that wasn't necessarily in his mind. That's exactly what he's doing. If you're God and you're big and you can do this, well, I'm going to put out a fleece. And if there's dew on the fleece only, but not on the ground, then you must be truly God. God honors that. And all I can say about that is, I'm glad he does, because there's times I've tested God and said, Lord, you've had the wrong person here. Absolutely the wrong guy. And, you know, if you, if you think you've got the right guy, you show me. And he does. And then he goes and does the opposite. Well, okay, here's my theory. God is big. He's the creator of all things. And he can make the dew fall from heaven. And he can make it land where it is. All right? And, and he, he tests it with the fleece. And he wrings out a bowl of water out of the fleece. And then he says, boy, that, I don't know. Is he really God? Or does that maybe just happen naturally? No, I'm going to ask the Lord something else. All right, Lord, I'm going to put the fleece out again. And now have the dew all over the ground, but not on the fleece. And sure enough, God does it again. And it's through that that he finally says, yeah, you're big. You're God, you're creator, 
and you can do whatever you want. And until we come to that conclusion about God who is big and sovereign and can do anything he wants, and by the way, he can suspend the laws of nature because he is the God of nature, he could even do that. And you will never be able to test God in a laboratory. You will not. Some things are, are only accomplished by revealing, you know, basically living, relying on him by faith. For instance, you'll never repeat the resurrection in a laboratory. There's lots of evidence for it. It's not something without evidence, that's for sure. But you would come at it a different way of proving it. The legal historical method of proving, which is done all of the time in courts of law, um, it isn't done in a laboratory. And we see that. And we understand it. And we trust him. So this is not a blind leap of faith. I don't want to have you think that way. God can take our doubts and he can dispel those doubts. And he does with Gideon. And it was so when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung out uh, the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. And then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but... um, On all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was also, or there was dew on all the ground. And again, I just say this, that's how gracious God is. To take his faithless warrior and to say, I'll show you a little bit of what I can do. And when Gideon, if that's what it took for Gideon... He took those baby steps, but they were steps of faith. And he understood that indeed God is God. And he became big in his mind finally and understood who God was in that. That's what faith demands. It demands a reliance on the Lord in spite of what maybe we are worried about. Remember as a kid growing up... uh, you know, around lakes, Eagle Lake in particular, and St. Freud Lake where our house was and all that. But I remember standing as just a little kid. It was, I don't know what time of year, probably you know, beginning of January, late December, somewhere in that time. And the ice had finally frozen solid through um, the lake, and we were down at the plain base in Eagle Lake, and I was standing there with a friend, uh, probably first grade, and we're there, and my mother told me, don't go out on the lake right because it hadn't frozen up yet but we had a good cold snap and and we were venturing out on the lake a little bit and it was so clear the 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 ice was like glass you could look right down and you actually could see fish that were in the shallows and and you're walking out walking out just taking little baby steps out on the ice and all that worried that it was going to break and more worried that my mother would find out i'm on the lake and you know what? Then all of a sudden, here comes this guy. He was going fishing. Uh, it must have been after January 1st. And he comes right down. He drives right out on the lake with his pickup truck. And he stayed up, all right? Sometimes you don't, but it, it, he did. See, he knew there was enough ice to hold up a pickup truck. I was worried about it, just holding my little frame at that point. Sometimes that's how we are with God. We just, we're so worried about something. We're so fearful. We're Oh no, you know, people are going to see. 
And God says, just step out, man. Just get in your truck and drive on it, all right? That kind of thing. And don't do it haphazardly, but do it with the backing of God, right? That's what faith demands. And that's what Gideon comes to. Are you trusting the Lord today? Are you trusting him in the little things or the big things? Just trust him. Are you trusting him in salvation? Have you asked him to be your savior? He's able to take every sin you've ever committed, and even the sin that you will commit, and he's taken it to the cross. And now he says, here's a gift for you. You need only receive my forgiveness. You have to receive that. And if you do not receive that, then their sin is still with you. It's that simple. But you say, I don't know, I've got a lot of sin in my life, or maybe he can't really save me. Let me just tell you, he's able to save you to the uttermost. I'm glad for that. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word, and your word helps dispel sin and doubt and helps make us people of faith. And I would pray to that end today. Work your work as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.